0: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us!
1: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with...
2: Genevieve Kosky.
1: Scott Tobias.
2: Today we're... What are we doing again? Don't you remember, Keith?
1: Keith, are you okay?
0: Do you need us to jog your memory?
1: Memory. Okay, there it is. (laughs) This week, we're talking about two science fiction films deeply interested in the question of memory and how it relates to our identity. Well, okay, deeply might be too strong a word, but both are somewhat concerned about memory and identity, even if they're always at least as concerned about keeping the action moving and explosions exploding. Genevieve, can you tell us more?
2: Sure. Captain Marvel, the first movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to focus squarely on a female protagonist, stars Brie Larson as the eponymous captain, a warrior from the noble Cree race, or so she believes. She's having a hard time remembering all the details of her past, and that issue gets even more complicated when she crash lands in 1995 Los Angeles. Her predicament reminded us a lot of another science fiction action hero, Douglas Quaid, the protagonist of Paul Verhoeven's 1990 film Total Recall, in which Arnold Schwarzenegger plays just an ordinary construction worker who dreams of someday going to Mars. But is it a dream? Spoiler, it actually, who knows? We'll get into that and other questions raised by Total Recall
1: after the break.
2: Quade. cut
1: get ready for a surprise
2: we can't let him run around he knows too much they've got
1: your bug i get a lock there and the bugs in your skull
0: take this thing out of the case and stick it up your nose don't worry it's self-guiding
2: got him welcome to mars you got a lot of nerve showing your face around here. Look who's talking. They erased your identity and implanted a new one. If I'm not me, who the hell am I? He's got a hologram! Welcome to Johnny Cab. Drive! Where can I take you tonight? Please fasten your seatbelt. I want Clay delivered alive for reimplantation for making me come to mars you wouldn't hurt me after all we're married
0: consider that a divorce
2: we hope you enjoyed the ride
1: he awoke and wanted mars the valleys he thought what would we like to trudge among them great and greater yet the dream grew as he became fully conscious the dream and the yearning he could almost feel the enveloping presence of another world So opens Philip K. Dick's 1966 short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, one of the most famous efforts from the prolific and much adapted science fiction writer. The story of a man who contracts an agency to implant false memories on Mars only to uncover real memories he didn't know he had, Dick's version begins similarly to the Paul Verhoeven direct at Total Recall, then diverges significantly. But both the source material and the film it inspired stay true to a theme that runs throughout Dick's work. If our only way to determine reality is our minds and our minds can't be trusted, how do we define what's real? For Douglas Quaid, that question takes on special urgency after he visits Recall, an organization he turns to to give him memories of the trip to Mars his wife, Lori, played by Sharon Stone, will never let him take. Suddenly, he remembers he's a special agent. A buddy at work is trying to kill him. He encounters a recording of himself instructing him how to remove a bug that's been implanted in his brain, and he's taking off for Mars in a desperate attempt to save his life and the lives of the rebels fighting for control of the planet. Unless, as a visitor to the fancy Mars hotel in which he's staying tells him, he's still unconscious back at recall, and all this is an implanted memory gone wrong. Total Recall was many years in the making and could have taken a much different form. Writer Ronald Shusett acquired the option to Dick's story in 1974 before anyone thought much of turning his stories into movies. He co-wrote a script with Dan O'Bannon, with whom he'd also write Alien, and from that script, many drafts would flower, including a version that might have been directed by David Cronenberg and a Patrick Swayze-starring Bruce Beresford-helmed version that was this close to happening before producer Dino De Laurentiis ran out of money. That opened the door for Paul Verhoeven and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who had already formed a mutual admiration society based on Schwarzenegger's fondness for RoboCop, and presumably Verhoeven's recognition that Schwarzenegger could be a valuable tool in his quest to create as many subversive blockbusters as he could while in Hollywood. Total Recall advanced that goal. Like RoboCop, it's in love with extremes, graphic violence, unnerving imagery, and bigger-than-life heroes. Schwarzenegger doesn't even need a robot suit to look like he's a comic book character. Here, Verhoeven throws in hints of the graphic sexuality that would define his next film, Basic Instinct, and with it, some of the misogyny that film either celebrates or undermines, depending on how you look at it. And like Robocop, Total Recall also satisfies all the needs of a blockbuster audience, particularly of the late 80s, early 90s era when an R rated action film could still be a box office success. But it unsettles while it satisfies. Just as every version of reality seems a little unreal to Quaid, something about the film always feels off, starting with the protagonist. Any film that asks us to buy Arnold Schwarzenegger as an ordinary guy is asking a lot, and both Total Recall and its star know this and play it as yet another reality-warping element. Schwarzenegger seems more out of place as a working Joe than as a secret agent. But is he? That's the big question looming over the film. Which is real, Quaid or Hauser, the identity in which he operates as an interplanetary man of mystery? Who is the real love of his life, Lori or Melina, the woman he believes he left behind on Mars? And where does he belong? On the red sands of Mars or in the low key dystopia of 2084 Earth? Which is the dream and who is the dreamer? Can we know? Does it even matter? We'll talk it over after the break.
0: Recall? Recall? You know where they sell those fake memories. Oh, recall! Recall, recall, recall! You thinking of going there?
2: I don't know. Maybe. Well,
0: don't! Why not? A friend of mine tried one of their special offers, nearly got himself lobotomized. No shit. Don't <laughs> oh, fuck with your brain, pal. It ain't worth it.
1: All right, guys. I saw this movie as an excited seventeen-year-old who kind of <laughs> fallen in love with RoboCop and wanted more. And it had me every step of the way with twists I did not see coming. What was each of your experiences, uh, Scott? I, I'm going to look at you first. I think you saw this at the time too, right?
0: I did. I did. I mean, I, I was fully on board. With Total Recall, I, I believe, I, I don't know that I bought then or even now that it was as substantive an effort as RoboCop was. It tilts more toward being an entertaining action vehicle for Schwarzenegger with some braininess than RoboCop, which felt like so much a strong social and political statement on top of being an action film. Mm-hmm. So there's a little difference between the two movies, but I think it's, it's still that are now immensely satisfying. I think it still looks great. It holds up. I think a lot of Verhoeven's values as a filmmaker and as a thinker and as a political person come through in the context of a blockbuster, which is something we so desperately need now and don't get that often. So uh, I had a good time.
1: Or revisiting it. And you had not seen it before at all. No,
2: right? I, I saw this movie for the first time as a tired 35 year old. So <laughs> <laughs> my uh, reaction to it was perhaps a little more muted than yours was the first time you saw it, Keith. But yeah, I still don't really know what to think of this film and uh, Scott you kind of put your finger on what i'm having trouble wrapping my mind around which is the Verhoeven-ness of it because like the i like i, I do like paul verhoven's work for like i like robocop and i really like starship troopers and so i was expecting a little more overt satire commentary whatever you want to call it than this movie delivered and watching it i felt a lot more like it was like i was watching a sort of straight ahead action movie. And like, I think maybe just on my first trip through, I was so captivated by the look of this and the effects of it and the weird Arnold Schwarzenegger performance in the middle of it that I was having trouble picking up on those elements in the story that were kind of subversive or satirizing action movies of of this vein. It felt a lot more sincere than I expected a a Paul Verhoeven movie to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, you know, in reading about the film since then, I gather that other people maybe do see those things in there a little more than I did. So maybe it just is something that comes out on multiple viewings a little more. It was a fun film to watch. It was a fun film to look at. I don't know if to, if I can quite say that I I liked it, um, and I kind of have a lot of trouble with Arnold Schwarzenegger as a center of a film most of the time. Like He rarely works for me, um, with apologies to Matt Singer and uh, anyone else who... It's going to be a pretty big apology yeah, to yeah. Matt Singer. But, you know, we, we all have our things. Mm-hmm. His thing is Arnold Schwarzenegger, and my thing is not Schwarzenegger. So, uh, when I, t- I told a couple people we were doing this film for the podcast, and... Both of them were very enthusiastic about the idea of revisiting this film, and both of them immediately said, "I don't know if you're gonna like it." <laughs> and uh, you know, they were they were mostly right, but uh, not maybe not for the reasons they thought, uh, which were, is the violence, you know. And I'm kind of known for being a little violence averse, uh, <laughs> yeah. but the the type of violence in this movie that is so stylized, so heightened, gruesome, uh, gr- yeah, but also kind of beautiful to look at in a way just in terms of how it is done in the film like i i feel like i want to watch a two-hour making of this film more than i want to watch this film again <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like rob botten again yeah. yeah just the effects of this film the gross out uh, the violence is so Effective and, and really just as extreme As could possibly be in any moment You know it's just like <laughs> oh Well there's this, this, this uh, large pole Maybe they, we can just like, stick that through Somebody's head <laughs> uh, yeah. There's like
1: lots of moments like that in the movie Yeah I, I think a lot of that And, and I, I agree with this isn't Robocop It's not all the way as Tuned into the satire as it can be but I think He's really interested In uh, how to take the Violence of of such movies at the time And make it both kind of you know, horribly beautiful as you're pointing out and compelling, but also kind of like, do I really want to watch this? I mean, do I really want to see this? And also like moments of having the hero, and it's tempered a little bit in the moment, but having the hero use someone's body as a human—yeah, <laughs> yeah—that's
0: I mean, not that escalator sequence is incredible, it, right?
1: It is incredible. And like one way you can always tell a hero from a villain in a movie is in a crowd scene, the villain just pushed people out of the way, and the hero say, "Excuse me," and that's just not the case here, you know. And I, I it just to me the, like it kind of mentioned above, but like there's just something a little bit off about every moment in this movie. You know, we'll get into the question of, of what's real and what's not, but even the fact that all the scenes on Mars, kind of look like elaborate movie sets. To me, I think that even that kind of feeds into the is this really happening or not Uh, tone of the movie. I mean, I, I find all that stuff... I mean, the more you think about it, I think the more... You can find the thought that's put into it. I think it also falls in a really interesting place in Schwarzenegger's career, where he's just starting to play with his image. Some, you know, I, he's been the straightforward action star for a, for a long time and had, had huge success doing it. But this is his first action movie he's made after Twins, and it almost seems like he's trying to meet those two instincts halfway. And here. it t-
2: came out the same year as Kindergarten Cop, same year which, as, which, which yeah. was the nineteen ninety Arnold Schwarzenegger film of my youth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is is it? No, no, it's not a tumor <laughs> it is a tumor, yeah, yeah. It's not a tumor. Uh, it's not a tumor, uh, but having him play an ordinary guy, it just it just doesn't register as as right, you know. It, it just mm-hmm. registers as, as either comic or satirical or just kind of unreal. I think with Schwarzenegger,
0: it really the casting ends up being something you just have to accept uh, mm-hmm. in, in the sense that he's going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you put him in the context of a Terminator movie. His robotic nature makes a lot of sense, and there's a kind of a charisma there. But if you do place him in a role like this, as a you know wor- working class guy, that it doesn't quite work. What, I mean, what, fortunately, and fortunately, and the film has a built-in mechanism to say, "Hey, this is actually not right." Who he could be? He could be this other person, a secret agent, and maybe that. Maybe you're going to find him more persuasive in in maybe. that role. But 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 what Schwar- <laughs> with Schwarzenegger is just. A presence and, and, and he's going to give you a good powerful physical presence and a certain kind of clunky charisma in these types of roles that kind of works but it's definitely not perfect it can't be perfect because he's not a perfect actor but right? well,
2: yeah and it's also putting him in a semi-comedic role i mean like there are comedic beats in this movie that he is expected to carry off i'm thinking of the Pretty terrible line about Ugh, wanting a divorce. <laughs> not a divorce. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um,
0: terrible. Come on. That's a. That's a. I, I'm clapping. I'm in the theater clapping in that moment. Yeah.
2: I. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. You really are. No, or? Okay. But, then, like but then you feel.
1: But but again. Then I think you feel. Maybe you are. It is played as as, as an applause moment. But then if you're giving any thought to it, it's like, did I really just clap at that? I mean, I, I mean, that's, <laughs> part of me I feel like, and this is even you know basic instinct is basically this writ large. But I, I feel like. The hatred directed at Sharon Stone's character... I think there's a self consciousness to it. There, you're either watching someone's delusions of it doing this, or watching a, as we always are with movies, watching some kind of fantasy. And and like part of your fantasy being able to, you know, have a very good reason to, to put a bullet through your wife's head is it's sort of an ugly thing, to, ugly kind of mindset to be in, and it makes you think about that.
0: That's that is true. Or the, you just the, cheer the, along like a, yeah, like a you know, whichever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's I think that's probably tr- true. I, I kind of wish. I felt like I was, you know, being asked to interrogate <laughs> that moment more than I was.
1: I, but I think, I don't know. I think if you step back from this movie, it asks you to think about, you know, really examine everything.
0: I mean, I mean, the one thing I will say for the film that really came through for me in a big way this time was Venusville, for one, mm-hmm. uh, and just how much I felt for um, the people who populated that that area, including Dean Norris.
1: <laughs> Wait, which
2: one's Dean? Who's Dean Norris? He
1: was uh, one of the mutants. It was Dean uh,
2: Norris. Oh, totally with the yeah, the, yeah. the face. Okay, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. with with the suggestive anatomy face. But but <laughs> I, but consider like
0: you know, there's so much product placement in like ads, and it just felt like this is like a vision of a corporate space that we're so used to seeing now much mm-hmm. more even more even than 1990 and then you add on to the fact that that, that it very much is a corporate space that is being controlled by cohagen and his goons and that the very air that, the, that these people mm-hmm. are breathing that is you know subject to to be shut off without anyone caring i mean that's a pretty powerful message i think that, that that's where the film really kind of got to me both politically and and kind of emotionally because I felt you felt like, boy, this is just kind of this group of, of misfits who, is, who are just confined to this world where they're dependent on, you know, a malevolent corporate overseer,
1: including a little kid,
2: the little mutant kid. Yeah. How, can you, how can your heart not go out to the little mutant kid you know yeah yeah, yeah I, I was also really fascinated with the mars dynamic but the look of it too like i mean i i do love venusville and i you know what i will just say it i even like the three boobs i think oh, that, that yeah no. you know i'm i'm not afraid to say it <laughs> it makes but you think it, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it does it does um, but anyway, back to Mars, like the whole story of the resistance, rebellion, whatever you want to call it, that's kind of happening there. Like, it, it's really fascinating to me because of, you know, these these issues that you speak of, Scott, that it, that it brings up. It, the film doesn't give us enough of it for my liking because it keeps turning back to this this character, you know, and, and what he's what he's going through. And this resistance just, you know, has to do with his story that's happening. But it's just kind of an example of like so much of this movie, I'm more interested in the world than the story mm-hmm. that's being told. And again, I think that a lot of that is tied more to the character of Quaid and the performance than necessarily the the narrative. Mars just kind of epitomizes that feeling to me of wanting to know more about this thing that is relegated to the background.
0: One thing I was thinking too, in terms of like the way it ties in with robocop and then star troopers later is um what you see on television Mm -hmm. and and, screens
2: so many screens
0: screens but also also the fact that it's state-controlled television Mm -hmm. and that they're painting a picture that is completely inaccurate of of what reality is of of that they're painting the rebellion as terrorists Mm -hmm. they use the word terrorist in reference to the to uh you know of people who be completely overmatched and then they're minimizing uh, the amount of violence that's actually occurring in that situation that making it seem like there's less conflict and less unrest on Mars than than there actually is, and I mean and that is something that we see over and over in Robocop and in especially Starship Troopers when the government literally controls the media and can kind of present these images as fact and that people accept them as fact. And I mean, we of course then that got me thinking about what's happening right now with Venezuela and with you know the Trump administration claiming that aid trucks were were being destroyed by the Maduro government and and that being not the case so it's like this is all very dangerous stuff and it's stuff that that Verhoven was always interested in and on top of while he was in the middle of making these huge Hollywood spectacles.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, I did want to talk about the politics of this movie and I, I think you may have unpacked it pretty thoroughly mm-hmm. just there. I'm not sure it really goes much deeper than a basic sympathy for the underclass and, and a distrust of government propaganda but I think that goes a long way. I mean, I, I think that it's part of what makes this film still work is those, you know, we do see echoes of that today and it is applicable to, to many different situations like being behind the iron Curt- curtain or as you say right now it also ties
0: into individuals too and, and their ability to be fully themselves in the world I mean you know I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character doesn't know who, who he is and there's a company that implants memories that are not their actual memories but will seem that way and it's it's just you know it, you are as a human individual person you are being uh, controlled or manipulated by much more powerful forces than you have any control over you know
1: yeah how would this is uh something i want to talk about is how, how do you see this fitting into other philip k dick adaptations unless i'm mistaken it's pretty much the first big one after blade runner and a bit of trivia minority report was actually supposed to be a sequel to total recall originally oh. it's supposed to be set on mars and the um mutant psychics were supposed to be the precogs of the minority report
0: yeah well, i don't know i don't what do you think i mean i, I mean do you feel like they got Somewhat more respectful to the source as they went along i mean like i mean i guess they they really just had st- you know, we we're talking about Blade Runner and Total Recall, you're talking about stories that had to be expanded upon to, in mm-hmm. order to
1: make movies. Um,
2: well, they're also stories that have memory at their center and minority report, yeah, too.
1: Well, I mean, Blade Runner isn't based on a, f- a full novel, but but it's also probably the one that diverges the most from the source material of those three adaptations. And you're right, I think thematically they're all in varying degrees locked into what Dick was kind of trying to do, even if they don't necessarily uh, say that true to the actual stories themselves. I, th- I think it's probably not a coincidence that Dick has been adapted more often now that special effects kind of caught up with the ability to to bend reality a little bit more. and mm-hmm. I think that's something that you know, that works out pretty well here. Uh, we should talk about the effects a little. It comes from a very particular moment in special effects, but I also feel like it is kind of one of the high watermarks. I mean, of of the practical effects because mm-hmm. we're we're a couple years out from Jurassic Park, and this is really like one of the last times we're going to see practical effects on this level this often, this much makeup and and this much mask work and things like that uh, because CGI is coming in and a few years after that, you would never make a movie with sets, this elaborate. This is kind of like one, not the last hurrah because it takes a while for CGI to catch up with that. But by the time of Gladiator, at the end of the of the, of the century, at the end of the decade here, you know you would not have to build this much. You could just mm-hmm. green screen it in. So uh, I I think I'm I'm an old fogy and I feel like there is something that's lost. I'm not going to complain about the way things are done today, but but it is refreshing to see something that is this thoroughly. Realize with really tangible objects.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I kind of already spoke about the appeal for me with that in in terms of violence. Like I, I like it being kind of more stylized and heightened and the type of effects that are being used here facilitate that for sure. I also find it interesting to note that like there is some like very early cgi in this movie mm-hmm. and when you go back and look at a lot at films from this era that had early cgi most of the time it looks really bad but the way it's implemented here with the the x-ray you that's know and it. the skeleton it, yeah, it, good stuff. It's, it, it still looks really good to the to the point that i spent a couple beats wondering like is this something that could have been done practically like is that you know what is this a practical effect and that's why it looks like of a piece with everything else it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb the way so much early cgi does when combined with practical effects
0: no that that was the scene i was waiting to cite. Oh, i thought that was awesome yeah you beat me <laughs> just like I love, that x-ray thing is such a cool idea just to, just to see people on their way to the, the train heading to this kind of safe zone where nobody can have weapons and then and then when he does enter with a weapon and pauses and then and there, there's so much tension build up that was beautifully done and also uh, all done all done digitally you know you, you, get, a, you get a pretty big sample of that specific effect and it holds up great I, I don't think i don't think there's a whole lot of this movie that does not uh hold up well effects wise you know a lot of it is delightful I, the johnny cab is i love the johnny wonderful cab. <laughs> i got mean, that, that holds up great and um, uh voice of robert
1: picardo too
0: mars looks really interesting and uh, yeah he's a you know i mean verhoeven was always very talented and good at, at understanding how effects worked and how uh, you know he was always on the cutting edge i mean you look at robocop lo- robocop looks incredible then and now. Starship Troopers looks incredible then and now. You know, I mean, Starship Troopers is full of like back screen stuff and then, you know, some CGI, I think as well. And, oh, and, uh, a, lot of ba- a
1: lot of CGI. A lot of CGI, CGI a lot of back screen, but, but is, I mean, all so that is really beautifully
0: good. incorporated and gives you a sense of, of real physical threat. I mean, he's very good technical director on top of all the other Perverted crap he
2: does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Perverted crap that makes us love him. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Speaking of perverted crap, (laughs) that's my segue. No, um, I don't want to like imply that I think that this effect is poorly done, but I'm not a huge fan of the woman suit, his, his, his grotesque woman mm. suit. And not because of the way it, it looks or the reveal, which the reveal is kind of cool, but just like I don't understand it. Like I don't understand how it glitches. I don't understand why he can't say any other words. There's something in the conception that I'm either missing or isn't there that that scene just like puzzled me. It feels it, like there's
1: a much should be more like just don't do this or else... You are going to glitch out or something yeah. like that, but but yeah, it's
2: it just maybe like it just why why can he only say one phrase? It's not well, great. I don't get it. Did
1: <laughs> I miss yeah, something? I, I don't no? have okay. an answer to that. Okay. I think
0: it's just a kind of a bit of comic business with with uh, some action punctuated at the end, and that's that's what you get. I I didn't I never really thought about the the uh, logic of it, but uh, but probably, there's probably a reason for that.
1: Uh, so the million dollar question here is: I want to get everyone's opinion mm-hmm. on whether or not what happens in this film is real. Whether or not he actually is a secret agent, these are hidden memories, or he's still on the chair somewhere at recall. Uh, Genevieve, you're mm-hmm. going to go
2: first. <laughs> okay. Uh, can I cheat and say what Verhoven says? Oh, is he, is
1: he, uh, does he have an opinion?
2: Uh, he has. He has spoken out. But for, well, I, I will give my opinion course, for, the, the, first. You know, I, I, because, death,
1: death of the author. We don't care. Yeah, but,
2: ex- exactly. Personally, like, I kind of find it hard to swallow that he really is Douglas Quaid just because that character makes no sense of <laughs> like with Arnold Schwarzenegger playing him like the the idea that he's this average Joe in this unhappy marriage with like the most beautiful woman in the world for unknown reasons and happens to be having these dreams that are just because you know not related to anything else like it, it doesn't track for me in a lot of ways and also we have so little sense of Quaid outside the scenario that he's in that i can't imagine his mind coming up with something of this level you know of of, of this being all a dream but as for what verhoven says basically either it could be either and he he says (laughs) "And and i wanted it to be that way because i felt that it was if you want to use a very big word postmodern i felt that basically i should not say this is true and this is not true i wanted and we worked with gary goldman in that not the original writers very hard to make both consistent and that both would be true Hmm. So the answer, according to the director, is both. But I choose to say it is not a dream. And it is all just a ridiculous, over-the-top action uh, Yeah, I mean, story. I, I
0: think he's Carl Hauser. I mean, I think he's the agent. And I mean, the, the, the journey we go um, on in this film is that the life on Earth, uh, is Douglas Quaid, the construction worker, is the false one. And that, and that the whole film is a journey about him discovering who he is actually is and and coming and returning to that to to the life mm-hmm. that he was meant to have with the person he was meant to be
2: with and, get, and getting another chance to be a a hero or a, a version of a hero because like hauser is a, a a bad guy or you, you know like yeah. we, he, he's in cahoots with the with uh yeah he's, he's in cahoots with <laughs> I loved, I love that yeah name. so if it's real it's kind of like hauser getting to press a reset on who he is and being yeah. a hero and making the right
0: choice. I like the happy <laughs> implications of all that. I feel like that's the journey we take. We we kind of have the uh, sort of a happier conclusion at the at the end of all of that. Or
1: Yeah, but. I think it wants to have... I, I really think Verhoeven wanted it to be ambiguous. It could have been... I like this movie a lot. I think it could have been perhaps a more interesting movie if it had really fully committed to that ambiguity. I think just... Watching it, there are just too many scenes in which Quaid's not present. At all, so yeah. it's it's hard, you know, it's hard to justify that from from a uh, perspective of it being all an, an illusion, uh, unless he's, yeah, how was
2: how he dreaming those conversations between Cohagen and Rector? Well, here's <laughs> how: I,
1: if you really want to twist yourself a knots, you would do, this. do. You would say say it is a movie about movies in some ways, and his mind is so filled with these fantasies of entertainment and being surrounded by screens that. He needs to, to for to him to convince himself that uh, of this of this fantasy, it has to look like a movie, and mm-hmm. thus you know you also have these on this underground world that kind of looks like a movie set as well. You know, um, I think you had to twitch, like I said, you had to twitch yeah. yourself. Yeah, because do we but... get
2: any sort of sense that Quaid is is a? movie buff or like even that he's like engages well, with the whole entertainment world is, a, the whole a lot world is,
1: covered, is covered in screens
2: so. yeah but I, I don't necessarily i'm not saying entertain- it's a great I, argument i'm just <laughs> saying it's an argument Genevieve. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: i would also th- i you know you could also cite the the what if it was all just a dream uh, <laughs> and the fade to white at the end is, is a little strange uh yeah but whatever, you know, I, I, I think those are more like strange little grace notes than the perfectly balanced uh, play of possibilities that, that Verhoeven's talking about. But uh, I think they kind of, they give a little pepper to the film. I, I I like the, at least it holds out the possibility that we're watching someone's mind uh, destroy itself rather than <laughs> an actual, just a, a, an action film.
0: Yeah, and Verhoeven is always there convincing you that it's, the film is a lot smarter than you would expect such a <laughs> thing to be
2: then Schwarzenegger is there making you suspect it might be dumber than <laughs> I don't know. I, I,
1: I think, you know, I, I'm going to be the Matt singer standing where I think he's very, is someone who at least at this phase in his career was just very canny about how he appeared on screen, how he was used and made some pretty smart choices and just putting himself in the, in the middle of this, of this situation where he is kind of like starts out as sort of a neutered version of the Arnold Schwarzenegger hero and kind of, you know, well, I I don't want to extend that motive, the metaphor any further, but it kind of regains his fullness uh, throughout the, the over the course of the film. Uh, I I think it's it's a, a smart choice, and I think it was a worked out well for him, and I think it's an interesting use of him and, uh, and a nice convergence of things. You know, actually one of the one of the big at one point Verhoeven and Schwarzenegger were supposed to make a movie called The Crusades uh, mm. together, which I I, I regret. Never happened, but also probably would have been a movie who's so controversial we would still be talking about,
2: <laughs> we're yeah. trying
1: to debating what it was all about anyway today. As, as, as well, it's, in other words, a Paul Verhoeven film.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. it's like what, what makes it different from every other Paul Verhoeven uh, that's film? That's
2: true. Yeah, I guess it was a smart move on Schwarzenegger's part. Obviously, it worked out well for the movie. I just feel like for the story that's being told, I feel like the story in this film would be so much better if you had someone in that role who actually read as an everyman and they could actually actually tease out this ambiguity of is he just a normal guy or is he a, I mean you look at you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, and you're like no that obviously he is actually the swab secret agent who has all these you know this very special set of skills or whatever you know but like Briefly, can we talk about like the other people who may have played this role, you know, like uh, Richard Dreyfus was the like way back in one (laughs) of like the very original, you know, that's your
1: every man, that would be your every (laughs) man. Yeah, yeah, or uh,
2: Jeff Bridges uh, was, I guess, originally attached when Cronenberg was involved. Mm. He really wanted William Hurt. In that role. That would have been good. Yeah. 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 So, like, uh, Schwarzenegger's presence makes this this a Schwarzenegger movie, and, like, for better or worse. For me, personally, it's maybe a little worse, just because I can't help but think of what else it might have been in in the hands of a different uh, star. But that is not the movie we got, so.
1: It could have been Patrick Swayze, too. Yeah. They they were building sets at at the time they shut it down, but... Would have,
2: have had more dancing, hopefully. Possibly.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to see Bruce Beresford's... Uh, <laughs> A-
1: action action, no, action director
0: extraordinaire. I'm going to just, you know, rather than gamble on those alternate realities, I think I'm going to stand pat on the one we have.
1: Well, that should wrap it up for now. We're going to talk more about Total Recall in, in our next episode when we compare it to Captain Marvel. And for now, we'll be right back with Feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Scott, what have you got for us?
0: A listener named Ryan wrote in with an email that promised it would touch on too many things at once. And it did, <laughs> or at least too many to feature here. But we wanted to share Ryan's thoughts on our pairing of A Bucket of Blood and Velvet Buzzsaw. Ryan writes, Hearing you all move from discussing Velvet Buzzsaw itself to talking about Netflix's model, maybe think of David Ehrlich's review where he called Velvet Buzzsaw the, quote, platonic ideal of a Netflix movie. And I wondered if you all had any thoughts on the meta-commentary of this, a movie about the commodification of art that ends up as a piece of, or even the jumping-off point for conversations about the workings of film as a medium that's been almost entirely commodified. I doubt there was any conscious effort by Gilroy to work with Netflix in particular to force this meta-conversation, but I think it's an interesting one. It is interesting. <laughs> Good job, David Ehrlich. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Though, though, weirdly enough, I was thinking much more, and we talked about it on the last episode of of High Flying Bird being so much of a Netflix movie mm-hmm. because it's so much ab- about you know going around the studio, going around the, the gatekeepers, and kind of going and putting your stuff on this platform that's widely seen yet kind of semi independent in some weird way. But, uh, but I think I think. I think there's a good argument here about Vel, Vel- well,
2: And I think in that podcast, which I did not participate in but edited, so definitely heard, uh, I think it was Keith, you speculated as to whether – Netflix is sort of where B-movies are migrating to or, or will will continue to have a life, you know, and yeah. I, I, th- I think you all kind of poo pooed that idea, but I, I was nodding along when, yeah. when I heard that. Thank you. Um, where were you when I met you, uh, Genevieve? Um, <laughs> I, was, I was in Los Angeles, but but just the idea that Netflix can play home to types of movies that theaters no longer can't, I think is something that maybe we don't like to think about as, as as movie people who still really like to go to movies. But I think the evidence suggests more and more that that might, may be the case. And it's not just, you know, sort of would be schlocky B movies, but also the rom-com has had a, a big renaissance on Netflix in recent years. And, you know, these sort of low to mid-budget movies or, or like super low budget indies, a la high flying bird, you know, and they do find a, a home there. And I think more and more filmmakers are cognizant of it of that. And I don't think it's out of line to think that some filmmakers are beginning to incorporate that into their actual filmmaking, or the, at least the thinking behind it. Does that make you sad, Scott? <laughs> you look sad.
0: <laughs> I'm okay. I, we, you know, I mean, I shouldn't gripe. I guess all the time about it, but then we just did two episodes in a row of Netflix. Almost did a third films, one. So we nearly <laughs> did a third one. We were considering triple Frontier. So, so yeah, and uh, Netflix
1: films that, you know, both films that would have a hard time. I think it struggled in theaters. It struggled to get to get seen in theaters. Um, yeah. Although it's funny to me. To talk about Velvet Buzzsaw now because it feels like it's already just yep in the vapor everything, <laughs> you know? everything
0: feels that's the thing about that's the Netflix effect though it just feels like after that initial weekend it just it's just vaporized even though it's present on the system mm-hmm. it does it you know it's lack of a, a presence in. A movie theater, which you can drive to and pay money for and sit in a seat along with other people, it's a it's a different feel.
2: I, I wonder if the Netflix effect ha- is less to do with the initial release of a film and more with its ongoing life because. You know, having so much content on Netflix and other streaming services has kind of gotten rid for a lot of people of the experience of finding a movie on television, you know, and what in, you know, Keith, you've spoken about this before about stumbling upon some random movie on, on TV, you know, and... Also, the experience of rewatching the same movies for, for me, like a lot of rom-coms, that's kind of a big part of my movie going adolescence is watching the same, you know, watching Carrie Met Sally, God knows how many times on TV, you know, mm-hmm. and now when there's just this depository of so many movies that you can pick and choose from at any point you lose that feeling and the connection that comes with it of you know either discovery or a certain mm-hmm. maybe comfort of revisiting the same movie over and over again that I associate with watching movies on television
0: oh that's interesting I mean I, I mean I was thinking more almost of what Sam Adams called the convenience trap back in the day of just mm-hmm. like of because you're just on your couch and you don't have to Fish out a DVD and and you can just get on Netflix and kind of see what's about and uh, you you make choices you would not have made otherwise. I mean, I would Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think I would have given in time to watch Paddleton, (laughs) which (laughs) I did this week. I mean, it's it's perfectly fine, but um, but yeah, that was
2: kind of me with Dumplin'. I guess Dumplin'. Yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's like yeah,
0: you're not gonna, but you know, uh, you going out you going out to a movie theater to see Dumplin'.
2: Probably not. But I'd but I'd watch if I came across it on TV.
1: Dumplin' was something I vaguely thought about watching once a few months ago and and (laughs) I've forgotten existed. He had to strike while the Uh, dumpling iron was hot. Yeah. So, all right. Well, another listener named Ryan, at least I think it's another listener, wrote in inspired by a different episode. Genevieve, you want to take this one?
2: Happily. Uh, Other Ryan writes, on your latest episode discussing White Men Can't Jump, you read some feedback about bad movies and the negative impact they can have on our perception of other films in a director's filmography. Luke's letter made me think of the concept of a good-bad album coined by music critic Steve Hyden. Yay, Midwest. Yay, Midwest. A good-bad album is an album which on its face you might not like, but helps you realize what makes the records you'd love in an artist's discography so great. He's used Springsteen's Human Touch as an example. While there are movies that reveal their creators as frauds, I find it more interesting to think about good-bad films. Velvet Buzzsaw fits into the good-bad category for me. Nightcrawler seems even better knowing how it could have gone wrong. Another example is Isle of Dogs, a film which, despite my best efforts, I could not warm up to, but made me realize how special my favorite Wes Anderson films are, specifically Fantastic Mr. Fox. The Isle of Dogs, Fantastic Mr. Fox one is, speaks to me personally here. <laughs> That's a experience I, I definitely felt because I love Fantastic Mr. Fox and wanted Isle of Dogs to be more like that, and seeing Isle of Dogs only highlighted that for me, but... Um, I I feel like uh, Ryan is maybe asking us for other examples here that I am struggling to come up with off the top of my head. I think it's easier with music in a way I I can immediately
1: talk about why I don't know. It's not not even the right thing. I like, I I love the, Bob Dylan album Desire, even though I think it objectively has some of his very worst songs on it, uh, but yeah, I listen to it all the way through every time because it just kind of gives you the, everything Dylan was doing at that point. But but in movie wise, I don't know. I'm, I'm I, I want to like. I think
0: Altman had a lot of those moments. Yeah. I mean, you look at a film like *Predator* or something. Where it, like it's that. It's like
1: or, everything that he does well, but it doesn't work. You yeah. know, so I, I actually have really almost with example. him. It was
0: all you'd see other other people trying to do Altman and then you'd say oh yeah you know Pratoporté wasn't so bad or or like Altman just had a way of doing things that had a kind of a special kind of magic that other filmmakers couldn't replicate but I don't know I'd be thinking about I'm just off the top of my head I mean a movie like Hitchcock's Marnie is not, sure. uh, not a perfect film, but it does um, give you an appreciation for what he was going for at that time in his career and, and how ambitious it was and, and you know the sort of Freudian themes that he was exploring that maybe got explored more effectively in other films of that era. But uh, I I like this idea, though. I do like the idea of a misfire having kind of a clarifying... Effect
1: Bonfire of the Vanities. I it still got some amazing oh De Palma stuff in it. Yeah, it's, but it just doesn't work.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean that that, that was one of the famous. I think it was Pauline kale who was saying that that you know only a great director could make a film that bad. Or something. I'm butchering what she just said. What she said, but you know what I'm saying. Like there's, you, you kind of almost know that you're the presence of a great filmmaker when you when you witness a fiasco of that magnitude
1: is there a scorsese that would do that for you
0: no i I mean the worst scorsese to me is is that rolling stones uh shine a light is shining light i mean that's just bad because it's it's not even bad it's just it's just not vital in any real Mm -hmm. way it feels very uh canned and in a a way that scorsese films never are but scorsese i think is pretty solid all the way all the way through top top to bottom
2: um, I'm thinking of some of like the Coen brothers, lesser, lesser mm. works, something like, you know, Lady Killers, mm. which I, I haven't seen in years. And I don't know, maybe I would l- like it, like it more. Now. I rewatched it recently. Yeah. It's a, was, was it a clarifying experience? It was. Though? It was. Did I remember <laughs>
1: liking it okay at the time and liking it a lot less this time <laughs> uh, but yes i think that's, yeah. that's actually a pretty good example yeah. of, of what he's talking about
2: right yeah like they they are filmmakers who you know even when they're doing their thing not particularly well it's still very clearly their thing and you can see it kind of tentacling out uh, in better pieces of their filmography i think
0: definitely i like this concept though i'm gonna, <laughs> I'm
2: gonna
1: think about it some more you know, perhaps, maybe, you know, if anyone out there is listening and wants to uh, have their own examples, write in and we can keep this conversation going. Totally. All right, finally, we want to direct everyone to our Facebook page. Well, just in general, because it's great. But uh, <laughs> we shared a work of a listener named Enrico who created a kind of alternate universe timeline of possible appearance we could have done. It's really good. And, you know, we probably should have done some of those. <laughs> and while we're at it, we should, we went back and forth with a few other movies this week. So in an alternate universe, we could, we could have done uh, Captain Marvel and, and The Hidden, which is a, a great 80s cult science fiction film about someone who's searching for an alien who can shapeshift in L.A. And what was the other one we, we, we came to so, Spellbound.
2: Spellbound. They were really
1: close to Spellbound. Indonesia. Really that,
2: that, that one came down to it not being very yeah, available at, at all.
1: It's only, you know, a great film by one of the greatest directors yeah. ever. Why, why should it be conveniently <laughs> available anywhere? But wh- what was the other one, Scott? And
0: compared to Captain...
1: Yeah, Captain, Captain Marvel, Marvel.
2: Yeah. Born Identity yeah, a, 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 right. a listener wrote in with Born Identity Born
0: Identity would have been a good one it,
2: it we, would have been good we idea. almost
1: did a we almost did a last minute switch switch to that but yeah. uh, you know, we might get around to the borns one of these days yeah well we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined write in and we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll turn back the clock to 1995 when the songs of garbage and no doubt blared from Geo Prisms. Samuel L. Jackson looked appreciably younger, and the struggle between the Cree and the Scrolls came to earth. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash show, and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be checking into the Mars Hilton and surreptitiously making our way to Venusville.